Denny O'Neill, prolific writer and editor at DC and Marvel Comics, passed away on June 11th, 2020, aged 81. O'Neill's accomplishments in the comic field are too numerous to mention and will no doubt be covered by others elsewhere, but here I will be focusing on his Amazing Spider-Man run. Denny's run on The Amazing Spider-Man was relatively brief, running from issues cover dated August 1980 through to October 1982. Fifteen regular issues in total, with an additional two annuals that are stone-cold classics. I have fond memories of O'Neill's run, as it was the very beginning of my being able to pick up US Marvel comics, and in fact it was issues of O'Neill's run that I first bought from the newsagents. More on that in a future episode. I appreciated it, even in hindsight. O'Neill didn't come in and kick over the tables. He didn't announce his presence by destroying the status quo or killing a character. He simply took over the book. He used the established scenario that was ongoing, that of Peter Parker, graduate student and teaching assistant, and he worked with the established supporting cast of the time, as well as adding a few wrinkles and a character or two of his own. He basically picked up from Marv Wolfman and carried on. Readers who didn't take any notice of the writing credits may not have noticed a difference. I did, and do. O'Neill isn't as melodramatic as Wolfman, nor does he seem as steeped in continuity. He certainly isn't as miserable. O'Neill just told stories. One of the things you'll first notice when you get on the internet is how many people there are out there willing to tell you you are wrong. You like Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who? Let me do a four-hour YouTube video telling you why you're wrong. You enjoyed Picard? Let me explain in painstaking detail the error of your ways. You actually like the Star Wars sequels? (laughs) Boy, you and I have got to talk. That kind of thing. There's always an edgelord out there willing to point out why the things you like are actually utter crap. It's always been thus, and thus it will always be. Hell... I've been guilty of this a time or two myself. Some of these opinions I actually agree with, but I've long ago learned it's not my place to tell somebody that what they enjoy is actually shit. Each to their own. Such it is with O'Neill's run. It is not widely regarded as a classic era, but I always liked it, and in this miniseries I hope to tell you why. I'm not out to convert anyone, I'm just here to tell you why I enjoy it. Some of that is pure nostalgia, which is, after all, a potent drug. But some of it is me thinking that these are actually really good, very underrated stories. I wasn't going to cover these at all. Rather, I was going to leap straight into Roger Stern's run. But O'Neill's death got me thinking about the work he did, and my earliest non-Batman exposure to it. And it was his run at Marvel that resonated with me. His runs on Spider-Man, Daredevil, and Iron Man. And I admit, I got a little wistful. Time eventually takes us all, but we also lose people we admired. And I admired Denny O'Neill. This will also be an experiment. O'Neill's run isn't short enough to do in one show, but it's too long to give over to four weeks' worth of shows. I'd been toying with the idea of a weekly miniseries over summer, an idea planted in my head by Damian Lee, top bloke and all-round good egg. These two ideas dovetailed, and this will be our first, for me, a five-day daily podcast. Let's see if I can pull it off. So let's start at the beginning, always the best place to start, with Amazing Spider-Man issue 207, which came out in May of 1980. 
The cover is by Michael Netzer and Al Milgram. In contrast to the covers of Yore, it's a textless aside from a small sidebar stating Final Curtain. A giant green man with purple gloves and helmet... I will refrain from making purple helmet jokes, conjures up explosions on stage around Spider-Man in front of a paying audience. It's a very effective cover. Who is this guy? What's happening? How did Spider-Man end up on stage? Back when covers enticed a reader. The splash page is equally magnificent, taking the form of a Victorian poster for circuses and the like. Here it is. Now playing... The renowned Mr. Stan Lee, Esquire, impresario and purveyor of phantasmagorical delights, in association with Messrs. Denny O'Neill and James Mooney, raconteurs, P. Marcos, graphic technician, Jim Novak, calligrapher, Ben Sean, purveyor of colour, proudly presents the amazing Spider-Man, his wondrous feats have astonished multitudes, in a most serious contest of strength with Mesmero, formerly a well-regarded X-Men nemesis, the present programme shown under the title Mesmero's Revenge. A pleasing series of thrills is promised to the public. Enough said. It's a brilliant splash, and I'd suggest it would make a great poster with fake torn edges. It also tells people like me, who never really bothered reading the X-Men, that the Green Man was Mesmero, and he was an X-Men bad guy. Our story opens with Peter Parker, somewhat older than the last time I looked in on him, attending a Broadway theatre show in which Mesmero hypnotises and humiliates punters on stage. It's not going down well, least of all with Peter and his current on-again, off-again lady friend Deborah Whitman, secretary to Peter's Dean of Studies. Deb thinks the show is rubbish, so Peter offers to go and get them both a drink. As Mesmero has the poor sap on stage juggle explosive balls, Peter ambles to the drinks counter, but he notices one of the explosive balls has set fire to the stage curtains. He uses his web shooters to pull the curtain out of the way, and it burns itself out harmlessly. Mesmero sees all this, and therefore knows Spider-Man is in the audience. After the show, as the crowd get up to leave, Mesmero announces that if Spider-Man wishes to meet him afterwards, he may have a lucrative offer for the wall crawler. This is a low-key but entertaining opening. O'Neill quickly and efficiently introduces Peter, Deb and Mesmero, and sets up that our hero is once again strapped for cash. I liked that Peter did not feel like he needed to be a glory hound that actually changed to Spider-Man to put out the fire. Rather, he took the more mature and sensible route, dousing the flames without arousing suspicion or creating panic. The lure of easy money once again proves to be Peter's weakness, and he ditches Deb, lies to her, and puts her on a bus home. Ah, Peter, you're a class act. In what will be a recurring motif, Peter is really rude to Deb here. This was a subplot of the time, that Deb was basically Peter's go-to for a date when he was at a loose end. We never got the impression Peter liked or even cared about Deb that much. Oh, he tries to convince himself that he does, but... For Deb's part, she knew she was kind of an also-ram, but she was also a bit of a doormat, mousy and unassuming. In other words, she's totally not Peter's type. She's a throwback to Betty Brandt, but even Betty had more to her than Deb. Peter's attracted to strong women, Gwen, MJ, the Black Cat, but not Deb or even the oft-forgotten Sissy Ironwood. After MJ left, Peter bounced around the dating scene, never clicking with anyone, and we can read some psychological damage into this due to Gwen's death, although that's a reading from well after these stories were published. Peter was never nice to Deb, and telling her he has an exam is stupid, given that as the Dean of Studies Secretary, she knows his schedule. But offering her 50 cents for the bus for her home? 
That's horrendous behaviour, Peter, even though it is slightly funny. Still, it is in keeping with Peter often being a bit of a dick, a part of his personality that is often forgotten by writers subsequent to Lee. Also in keeping with his personality, the need for cash, especially after Aunt May's recent brush with death, as covered by myself in the episode about Marv Wolfman's run. See what happens when you don't attend staff meetings? Peter switches to his costume and pops in to visit Mesmero. Mesmero is trying to go straight, to his credit, but to beef up his audiences and his takings, he's offering Spider-Man $400 a week to do a 15-minute segment in his show. Spider-Man says he'll think about it and offers to return tomorrow at 6pm. As he swings away, Spidey recalls Mesmero's issues with the X-Men, but if he's on the up and up now, there's no reason to not work with him. Honestly, Spider-Man, you, you really think that's a good idea? How did you ever think this would end well? <sighs> Spider-Man decides to pick up a paper, and being loyal to his employer, he picks up a copy of the Daily Globe. Wait, the what? Yes, faithful listener, another aspect of this time period was Peter worked for the Daily Globe, not the Daily Bugle. The Globe's theatre critic savages Mesmero's show, a fact that does not please Mesmero, who promises retribution. The next day, Peter drops by the Globe with some photos and spots two things that seem to be not kosher. One, he's sure the guy who just passed him going to the lift was Mesmero. And B, the Globe's theatre critic just followed with exactly the same blank expression as the people on Mesmero's stage last night. He takes off, changes to Spider-Man and follows the critic, Oswald Klum, to the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. The Brooklyn Bridge? Doesn't that mean we're going to get some Gwen hand-wringing? Well, yes, lovely listener, but no, we don't get that. We get one panel of Spider-Man recalling that Gwen died due to his shooting his webs to save her, but then changing his mind to save Clum by diving at him and swinging away. I mean, we have questions, such as who chained Clum up? Why not just have him walk to the bridge and jump off because he's dead either way? But whatever, doesn't change the outcome. Spidey drops Clum off with the cops, who chastise Spidey for interfering, saying they would have talked him down. Spidey is aghast. He'd already jumped... Oh, forget it. Clum is at least grateful, offering Spidey two tickets to a chorus line, the hottest show in town. He immediately invites Deb to the showing tonight at seven, which gives him just enough time to tell Mesmero where he can stick his offer, given the critical drubbing his show has received. He webs over to the theatre, only to be surprised that all of the city's top theatre critics are entering the stage door. This was a neat moment. Of course Peter would know who all these people are, given the circles he moves in. More should be made of this. Anyway, Mesmero says that he is, in fact, doubling Spidey's offer, but of course, it's a trap. The money is rigged, Spidey's spider sense goes off far too late, and our hero ends up unconscious on the floor, which means he misses seeing the show with Deb. Denny has already got Peter's measure. For the first time, pretty much ever, being Spider-Man reaped dividends in that he got two tickets for a top show. But then being Spider-Man got in the way of his enjoying his good fortune, screwing up Peter's life in the process. What's not in character about that? It's a far more subtle example of the Parker look than Dan Slott managed in ten years. The rest of the issue goes as you would expect. Mesmero's decided that going straight sucks, and theatre critics suck more, and he decides to take his revenge. He has Spider-Man perform a deadly juggling act whilst the theatre critics hurl tomatoes at him. The problem, 
The ball, Spidey, a juggling or explosive. And if he drops one, room, go boom. Spidey turns the tables, explodes the bombs harmlessly against the ceiling. I guess they weren't as deadly as Mesmero had hoped, and punches him out to the applause of the critics. Spidey takes a bow, the curtain falls. Sure, the explosive at the end were a literal damp squib. Perhaps Spidey should have webbed them up and then muffled the explosion in multiple layers of web fluid. But as debut issues go, this is okay. It's very low-key. There's no big reveals, no staggering revelations, no everything-you-know-is-wrong moments. Just a nice, done-in-one, simple, engaging Spider-Man story. The art by Jim Mooney and Pablo Marcos is perfectly fine also. Everyone is on model and the art services the story admirably. Just clear, crisp, sequential storytelling. Maybe the complaint against O'Neill's run is that it's nothing spectacular. But even Spider-Man has average days. Issue 208, Fusion, was the second issue written by O'Neill, but saw John Romita Jr. join the book. Romita Jr. will have a major impact on Spider-Man, becoming even more identified with the character than perhaps even his own father. This is Romita Jr. at the beginning of his career, and his work is clearly far more influenced by his father than by Frank Miller. The cover is especially Ramita-ish. A glowing figure with two heads is blocking the road, and Spider-Man swings to him. Back off, Spider-Man, the figure screams. You can't beat Fusion, the twin terror. You know, I'm willing to bet real money Spider-Man can beat Fusion. It's a solid cover, though. Very colourful, very eye-catching, the use of colour of the cars, Spider-Man's costume and Fusion's glowing effect against the grey of the 59th Street Bridge, and the street is very effective. This is also the month that this Marvel comic could be worth $2,500 to you. Hmm. The story was inked by Al Milgram and Brett Breeding, with plot assist from Matt Grunewald, Jim Shooter, and the fans at MapleCon 2 in Ottawa. A traffic accident up on said bridge prevents Spider-Man from making his morning meeting in time when he stops to help. He blunders in, moving the cars, until irate passengers point out that if they move the vehicles, their insurance is invalid. Well done, Spidey. O'Neill here giving us another example of Spider-Man trying to do good and screwing it up. Meanwhile, in the environmental physics lab of a private research lab in Newark, noted scientist Hubert Fusser works on his newest experiment, a subatomic particle accelerator capable of creating new elements. Now, I'm not a scientist. So for people like me, according to BBC Bite Size, an element is a substance that cannot be broken down into any other substance. There are about 100 elements, each with its own type of atom. Everything in the universe contains the atoms of at least one or more element. And with this device, Hubert plans to plumb the deepest secrets of the universe. Again, I'm no scientist, so I don't really know if this makes any sense. For one, isn't the study of elements more chemistry than physics? I mean, it doesn't really matter. Hube's twin brother, Pinky, is the janitor at the lab, something the more egotistical and superior Hube rubs in his brother's face at every opportunity. In a nice touch, both men have dwarfism, but this is never shown to be a hindrance or an obstacle to either man. It's just a part of who they are. Kudos to O'Neill, or whoever thought of this, for adding this detail. Hube wants to start his experiment without doing the proper checks, because he's a comic book scientist. As you may expect... It goes awry, and Pinky runs in to save his brother, an action that results in both men's flesh merging into one. As origins go, this is expeditious, and done away within half a page. Hurrah for brevity. 
Meanwhile, Peter arrives at the Globe for his staff meeting. It's been hosted by Rupert Doherty, a complete jerk and sleazebag who thinks the Globe is overly concerned with printing facts. Doherty seems to be a cross between Rupert Murdoch and Robert Maxwell, and not someone overly concerned with truth. Peter is also introduced to the Globe's new photographer, Lance Bannon. Neither of these developments please Peter. One, Doherty seems like a real arsehole, and Bannon's presence means changing to Spider-Man is going to be harder. Peter decides to take the afternoon off and go and see Aunt May at the hospital, where she's visiting Anna Watson. Peter just misses seeing Mary Jane, a development that likewise doesn't bother him over much, given her refusal to marry him. Screams from outside alert Peter because, wouldn't you know it, this is the same hospital where Hube and Pinky have been brought to. O'Neill uses this to make a few gags at DC's expense. One, he has Peter change in a broom closet, favourite changing place of one Clark Kent, Esquire, and then he has Spider-Man wonder if days like this ever happened to the comic book guy with the cape. Obviously, the latter could be referring to Thor. After switching to Spider-Man, he finds a strange glowing thing that leaps from a six-storey window, and rather than ending up a blot on the landscape, it seems to grow bigger. Throughout, the glowing energy beam seems to be having a conversation with itself, and it pulls itself apart long enough to reveal it's Hube and Pinky. Hube is all, we are a magnificent science experiment, and Pinky is all, don't care, leave me alone, but they don't now seem to be able to be apart and merge back into one being. Hube wants to test the potential. Is there a limit to the energy they can absorb? Hube is becoming more obsessed with the power, whereas Pinky wants nothing to do with it. Spider-Man relocates them at the George Washington Bridge, where Fusion has blacked out the Upper East Side. He's robbing every car of power, causing a worse jam than this morning. Spidey is in a pickle. Every time he hits Fusion, the energy force is reversed back at him, meaning he can't lay a finger on him. He can't even web him, as Fusion can absorb the chemical reaction of his web fluid. Fusion is headed for the Indian Point nuclear power plant to try and absorb the reactor, something that could be potentially catastrophic. As Hube and Pinky argue, Spider-Man ties a slip knot in one of the bridge cable ties, a good few inches of solid steel, and loops it around Fusion. Not being grounded, Fusion can't do anything, and Spidey appeals to Fusion's better nature, in this case Pinky. And with Spidey's help, Pinky is able to pull himself apart from his brother. Knocked unconscious, Spidey takes them to a doctor. What I like about this issue, another very low-key, done-in-one, is that Denny offers no answers for Spider-Man. He never learns about Hube and Pinky, what they are doing or where they came from. He even mentions that he may never know what the hell happened here. However, this is the second issue in a row where the ending has been rather abrupt, and I hope there's more closure to the stories going forward. Denny is starting to introduce his own subplots. The Daily Globe shenanigans and Lance Bannon are all obviously destined to cause problems for our favourite wall crawler, and we'll have to see where they go. Romita Jr.'s art in this issue is really good, evoking his father without being an imitation, which is odd given how imitative of Frank Miller he became later in his career. There are some standout panels in this issue, one being a delightfully sketchy shot of Peter on page 7, and some classic Spider-Man poses throughout. As I say, this was a great issue. I just kept wanting to call it Pinky and the Brain. For the first time in his run, O'Neill brings back a classic villain for issue 209, featuring a cover by Alan Weiss. The classic villain in question is Craven the Hunter, who, on the cover, is chucking a dinosaur-like skeleton at Spidey. It's also the month that you could win a Toys R Us shopping spree. 
To salvage my honour, again by O'Neill, is pencilled by Alan Weiss and inked by Klaus Janssen, Bob McLeod, Joe Rubenstein, Bob Wyasek and Al Milgram, suggesting someone was up against a deadline. To be honest, I find this issue rather weak. It's Craven again suffering from inadequacy about his inability to kill Spider-Man after conquering everything that's walked, crawled or swam at one time or another. He's been manipulated by the conniving Calypso into tackling Spider-Man for reasons that are never adequately explained. Calypso's motivations are somewhat confusing. In the early stages of the story, she's clearly manipulating Craven for her own ends, is openly contemptuous and sarcastic of him, but later is seemingly doing it for Craven's benefit in that she wants her Craven, the hunter, back. Hmm. Elsewhere, Peter and Deb are on another date. Deb mentioned that she's a bit down because her uncle, who runs a small shipping line down at the docks, has been threatened with the old protection racket scam. She asks if Peter can poke around, what with his crime connections due to the newspaper. Peter is even more of a dickhead than usual, flatly saying no chance. Yes, it's an established part of Peter's character that he's occasionally unlikable. A very brave choice to take with your lead. But here he treats Deb like shit, dismisses her problem, and when she takes off in a bad mood, he bitches that helping out is getting in the way of his real life. He's really harsh to her, and it's not really an understandable harsh. He switches to Spider-Man, heads to the docks, but is distracted from his purpose when he sees the animals come off a freighter two by two. This is, of course, the freighter Craven and Calypso are on, and Calypso releases the animal, causing Spidey and Craven to have to round them up. Spider-Man ends up helping a swimsuit model, who looks a lot like Murray Jane, but isn't, and Craven shows more respect to the animals than to humans, which makes sense. Spider-Man sees Craven and once again decides that this is none of his business, despite Craven being a wanted man. As mentioned earlier in the story, Spider-Man really is shirking his responsibilities here. And this may be one of the ways that people don't like O'Neill's story. Calypso tells Craven she saw Spider-Man open the cages, which Craven doesn't believe, and she accuses Craven of being a coward. As long as Spider-Man walks free, he is a reminder that Craven has been defeated. Craven agrees to fight Spider-Man. Don't worry about Deb's uncle. Spider-Man will finally get around to that in issue 211. Elsewhere in subplot land, Rupert Doherty asked Peter to get pictures of ESU lecturers engaging in hanky-panky with the pretty young students, to which Peter replies, I'd, uh, no, I won't be doing that, no. Barney Bushkin, editor, isn't impressed by Peter's ethics. Apparently Doherty is a Spider-Woman villain who got away from her due to lack of evidence, so now it's Spider-Man's problem. The argument is about to get ugly when Craven walks in, security, sleeping on the job presumably, demanding that they put on the front page that he challenges Spider-Man to a duel to the death. Why did Craven go to the Globe? Well, the obvious answer is because that's where Peter worked, but wouldn't he have gone to the Bugle? He has history with the Bugle and with Jonah. Anyway, we rush headlong to a conclusion we've seen many times before, and this is a problem throughout the issue. It's all a tad familiar. We've seen animals be freed on the docks. We've seen Craven fetid as a hero. We've seen him challenge Spider-Man. And we've seen him drug Spider-Man to win, as he does here. The big letdown, though, is the conclusion. After this huge build-up, Spider-Man takes Craven out with one punch. Craven never discovers Calypso's duplicitous nature, and there's even a very special tacked-on ending about how if we just communicate with each other, maybe violence can be avoided. And then it stops. Doesn't end. There's no next issue blurb, no fin or end. It just stops. 
Now, in retrospect, this plays into Craven's overall NUI, as ultimately seen in Craven's Last Hunt. But in and of itself, it's not very good. Part of that is the art. It's quite stiff in the final fight scene and very heavily inked. Released around here was Amazing Spider-Man Annual 14, one of the stone-cold classics I referred to earlier. The cover is a psychedelic piece by Frank Miller, Spider-Man swinging in as Doctor Strange is being tortured on a crystal. Doctor Doom looms menacingly in the background, because if anyone can loom menacingly, it's Doctor Doom. This is an excellent cover, with the colouring complementing Miller's excellent use of shadows. Frank Miller and Tom Palmer also provided interior art. It is foretold that once every 60,000 years the bend sinister will come to Earth, and only a man who is also a spider and a sorcerer supreme will be able to battle it. Fortunately, this is a Spider-Man comic, and it has Doctor Strange in it. What are the odds? The omni-translation is very specific. It's really lucky that a man-spider and a sorcerer supreme exist at just the right time. What did they do 60,000 years ago? Who stopped this back then? Each separate chapter has a lovely sepia-tinted panel to open with. They are all beautiful. The opener has Doom and Domamu sat opposite each other on thrones with a skull between them. We then see a magnificent panel of Castle Doom in the midst of a thunderstorm. Palmer is a great inker for Miller in this issue. In Latveria, Doom has used one of his minions, Dilby, to build a dimensional barrier crosser thing that can transport someone from here to the realm of the dread Domamu. Instead of risking his own life, because Doom isn't a stupid comic book scientist, he dispatches Dilby to the realm of Dormammu. Though Dormammu trains Dilby in the dark arts, and keeps Dilby blissfully unaware that he may not survive what Doom and Dormammu have planned. Doom's treatment of Dilby in this issue is very funny, albeit incredibly abusive. Also, Doom has pulled the trick of putting a minion into a machine they've created for him before. Doom has serious trust issues. Miller's depictions of the dimension of Dumamu are wonderfully evocative of Ditko, without slavishly aping Ditko. Miller only drew Spider-Man a few times, but he did a good job of giving him that wiry Ditko look, and it's nice to see he does the same with Doctor Strange, Ditko's other big Marvel creation. There are some great gags in this story as well. Doom watches films of Nazi Germany for fun, because of course he does, and the dialogue exchange between Doom and Dumamu is hysterical. There's a beautiful panel of Doom casually sipping tea from a teacup, his little pinky finger sticking out. Exactly how it doesn't dribble down the inside of his mask is a question best avoided. Miller basically cemented his reputation as a quality noir artist around this time, and that experience is all over this story. The opening shot of Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum is particularly moody and effective, being set at night in the rain. Nothing says noir more than night and rain. Using his newfound skills, Dilby conjures up a spirit that attacks Doctor Strange. Strange is taken on a words with even the crimson bands of Cytrak unable to combat this avatar. Even Strange's astral form falls before the onslaught, but before he is pulled below, he manages to get off a psychic floor. Strange's battle with Dilby's creation is pretty goddamned epic, and I liked that Dormammu, who would surely know these things, also had a contingency for the astral form. Said Fleur finds Peter Parker, which will not have been a surprise, given that this is his annual. It's typical that Strange's psychic flow goes to everybody else first, before settling on Spidey, and only then because no one else is available. Peter ditches his class and his date with Deb. 
Abandoning a class to go play at being Spider-Man would get him marked down by Ofsted, although if Deb Whitman just showed up for the date, he can't have been far from the end of it anyway. Peter dons his costume and webs over to Strange's house, where he's attacked by gargoyles. He smashes them into tiny pebbles. There's some excellent fight choreography from Miller and some great colouring from Ben Shaw. Spider-Man is forced to take the high ground, alighting upon the roof of Strange's Greenwich Village homestead. The house is a mess and a wounded Wong, manservant to Doctor Strange, informs Spidey that the only clue he can give takes the form of a telepathic message received from Strange, CBGB. All this means to Peter is the punk rock club down the road, coincidentally where he was taking Deb on their date. There's another chapter opening here that is simply beautiful. A noir-tinged double-page panel of Spider-Man swinging through the city in the thunder, lightning and rain. Comics like this show Miller's rep was, at one point, well-deserved. Spider-Man is also struggling with all this mystical stuff. He's always been a tad incredulous when dealing with the weird and wacky world of Doctor Strange. And I agree with Peter. These kinds of stories are out of his league and don't really suit him. I'm not a fan of him disbelieving this stuff. After all, he's seen enough weird shit at this point in his career to accept that it exists. But I do like that he's baffled and uncomfortable with it. O'Neill even has Spider-Man point out that this is weird and wacky and how he doesn't really like it. This brings the audience on side when putting Spidey in a setting that doesn't really serve him best. Arriving at CBGB's, Dilby's plan has been brought about. It's something called the Bend Sinister, like an evil conger, corrupting a local band into leading the revellers to Central Park with chants of Bend Sinister, Bend Sinister. A woman gives Spidey grief and he webs her mouth shut. I shouldn't, but I found this funny. I like Spider-Man when he's a bit of a shit. It also shows how Peter has grown as a character and that he was taking Deb Whitman to CBGB's. This was at Deb's behest, and it's her who's into the punk new wave scene rather than Peter. I don't recall if, in all these years, Peter has ever been given a musical taste. For a strip as New York-centric as Spider-Man, I'm surprised CBGBs haven't been mentioned before, given that it was on Bleecker Street where Doctor Strange lives. In fact, New York being a character in Spider-Man stories is a long-established tradition, and Miller captures New York magnificently. As well as CBGBs, there are great shots of Spider-Man over other NYC landscapes and places such as Greenwich, swinging over Washington Square, Times Square, and finally Central Park. As this is Miller, there's a great use of shadow throughout the story, and this may be the best I've seen Miller look in quite some time. CBGBs was, of course, the legendary punk rock nightclub that saw such great names as Talking Heads, The Ramones, Joan Jett, Blondie and many others play. It's even name-checked in the Talking Heads song Life During Wartime. In fact, Shrapnel, the band that are playing, are real and have an advert in the issue drawn by Miller and Joe Rubenstein for their single Combat Love. Shrapnel became Monster Magnet, who have continued to reference comic books in their songs and have appeared on the soundtracks to films such as The Matrix and The Crow. Marvel returned the favour, naming a character Negasonic Teenage Warhead after the song of the same name from the band's album Dopes to Infinity. The whole scene at CBGB's is pretty funny. Peter is even hit on by a girl who recognises him from high school. Wouldn't it be great if this was Jessica Jones? He does make some classic Peter Parker blunders. Apparently he forgot this was where he and Deb were going to, so him bumping into her and then standing her up again was typical of how their relationship worked. Peter always is awful to Deb, which makes him offering to take her to the all-night steakhouse in the middle of what he's doing really dumb. Surely he knows he's going to end up disappearing again. Of course, he does get called away. The Ben Sinister, the evil conger, carries on, and Peter dons his costume. 
Spider-Man fights the urge to join the disciples of the Ben Sinister, implying that it can be fought. He finds Doctor Strange tied to a giant crystal over the Latverian embassy, with Dilby holding court. He tells Strange that when the Ben Sinister happens mere moments from now, he will be used as a sacrifice, and then Dilby will rule over even Doom and Dormammu. As the Ben Sinister continues, thanks to the crystal and the moon becoming aligned, Spider-Man interferes, but Dilby distracts him with another avatar. Spider-Man goes through this final confrontation, mocking Dilby, as is his wont, but never once points out his uncanny resemblance to Dr. Octopus. With Spider-Man so distracted, the Ben Sinister continues, and Dilby monologues about total domination. A total domination that didn't allow for Spider-Man, who's managed to steer the Avatar into the crystal Strange is tied to, blowing it up. All the best stories end with shit blowing up. Strange is not impressed with Dilby. Angered, he turns to render judgement, but Dilby is pulled away to be punished by another. Spider-Man is duly thanked by Strange, who is also unimpressed, when Strange tells him the Ben Sinister was one of those things man was not meant to know. Dilby never actually explains what the Ben Sinister is and what it will do, and Spider-Man gets annoyed with Strange's excuses. Whilst I'm not really a fan of metaphysical endings, having grown up watching Space 1999, it was a surprise to me that I liked it here. Every now and again it's okay to not know what's going on, and this kind of thing is above Spider-Man's pay grade. The final fight sequence is brilliant, tense, action-packed, funny, with genuinely high stakes and a real sense of jeopardy, and the colouring again deserves praise. The use of red and crimson in the final pages is wonderfully rendered after pages of dark, murky visuals and the dreary rain. As for Dilby, well, Dumamu makes a gift of him to Doom. A Doom that will regroup and plan again for another day. This was a great issue. It's probably never going to feature on a top 10 list of great Spider-Man stories as nobody dies in it. But what it does do is tell a fun story. And it does it very well. O'Neill's writing is clever, witty and full of great lines for Spider-Man. O'Neill's tradition of Peter being a dick to Deb can be tiresome. But it works here as Peter is distracted. First by his class, then by the message from Doctor Strange. and Then by trying to keep Deb happy. And finally, after all he's been through, being told that he doesn't need to know what's going on. His frustration is understandable at the end, and in this case, O'Neill does a great job. I was very pleased with Doom and Dumamu remaining behind the scenes on this one, and with Dilby's final fate. Miller's art is at a career high. I don't know how much of this is the responsibility of Inca Tom Palmer, or if Miller was providing tight pencils for the issue, but whatever the case, it works. New York looks as real as it ever has in a Spider-Man comic. The choice of making it a dark and stormy night add to the atmosphere, and the feeling that the end of the world could be brought about by the otherwise rather useless Dilby feels genuine. I adored this as a kid. It may be that I was exposed to it at just the right time, but I still loved every page of it now, and it's where the Denny O'Neill run really begins. But ironically, where I will end part one. Come back tomorrow as we carry on with Amazing Spider-Man 210 and the first appearance of Madam Web. If you want to join in, I will be doing email when the episodes are a little bit shorter. I've only got a couple in the email bag, so you may want to drop me a message at heykidscomics.virginmedia.com. Thank you for joining me. I'll be back tomorrow. Take care. (laughs) 